Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for A Trip to the Movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the brilliant filmmaker Joe Lynch, will be taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema, as well as talking about his incredible new horror movie, Suitable Flesh, which hits UK cinemas and video on demand on October the 27th. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. And if you've been to watch a film at Odeon lately, you will know that nothing beats that cinematic feeling. It's not just about stuffing your face with delicious popcorn, although let's be honest, that helps. It's your hair standing on end, your palms sweating and being transported somewhere magical. It's feeling every footstep of some giant, lumbering monster. It's car chasers, space battles and your heart beating out of your chest it's about feeling cinematic and nobody does that better than odeon head to odeon.co.uk or download their app to book your next adventure today and if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on a pair. Also, if you would like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our YouTube channel. That's a trip to the movies YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, do subscribe and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch with us, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That is at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just two days ago on Zoom. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week, we are joined by a brilliant filmmaker who broke onto the scene with his excellent feature debut, Wrong Turn 2, Dead End. Since then, among other things, he's flexed his action muscle with the brutal Salma Hayek starring Everly, and now he's back to terrify us once more, getting inside our heads and under our skin with his stunning new horror, Suitable Flesh, that sees Heather Graham's psychiatrist become obsessed with one of her patients, leading to terrifying consequences. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies, it's the super talented Joe Lynch. Uh, Mr. Joe Lynch, absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. How are you, my friend? Uh, well, it is 7 a.m. and my hair is looking fantastic. So, like, <laughs> all things considered, I am I am doing well. Good to see you again. The last time that we saw each other uh, was at um, in very chilled Austin at mm. for, uh, for Fantastic Fest. Um, it was, uh, boy, did you feel like you had to break out a, a hoodie? Or uh, a jumper? <laughs> Good God, I've, just, I've never experienced anything like it. I mean, I you know, I should have anticipated it because Texas, right? It's going to be hot, but man, yeah. that was next level. Like you took two steps and you were drenched. It was brutal. Like I had, because um, someone we're going to talk about in a little bit, my partner back, I had never been to Austin before. And we'd, we'd always wanted to go, but whether it was for the movies, we have friends there, or just the culture, the music, the food you know, the, the weirdness of it. Mm. Um, nothing prepared us for how swampy and moist it was going <laughs> to be as well. Like Good. Uh, we had this whole thing planned where we were going to walk around Austin and, you know, for like any of the off days for fantastic fest, cause we were staying longer than usual. I was like, well, you know, we'll do a walking tour. We'll, you know, like we'll kind of silk in the site, grab a beer or whatever, 10 steps out. And we're like, air conditioning, where is air conditioning? <laughs> and we find like, 
looks like we're going back to the south tomorrow and we're going to watch more movies if we can even get in um yeah it was it was particularly um uh, uh wet yeah <laughs> yeah i, lo- I, I but, love uh, your use yeah. of the word swampy that is the best way to describe it just like you were living in a marsh like a marsh person just like sweating and sweating and sweating and that the alamo theater was such a blessed retreat from oh, that heat thank god like and th- that's the thing every time i go without fail either someone there is like you gotta move there or i'm even like i want to move there that was one particular time where i'm like could I move there from say November until <laughs> April or May and then find another oasis if possible. And, but again, just the fact that we were able to all congregate there for the love of cinema, be able to see such good, you know, such great genre filmmaking to, you know, to hang out with friends again. It's, it's worth the swamp ass. I will mm-hmm. say that. Yep. Yep. Swamp ass. Yep. I'd, I'd sort of forgotten that uh, horrific element, but you're absolutely right. Swamp ass never should two words be put together and yet that is the best way of describing it um so one of those one of those movies uh, that had its premiere at fantastic fest is your wonderful wonderful piece of work that is suitable flesh congratulations man oh thank you so much i was so thrilled to see you and chris there like you know some of the um the, the the fried fest contingent uh but more importantly just you know uh, Fantastic Fest is home for me in a lot of ways because my first film, Wrong Turn 2, which had absolutely no right to be at a film festival whatsoever when it came out in 2007, they embraced it and they embraced me. And uh, I've been trying to go back ever since. It is like that that perfect drug where you once you get that small fix, you have to go back. You know, As a filmmaker, you get that every time that you sit in the theater and you hope and pray that the audience is, you know, interacting with you fantastic fest is particular because you it's like hanging out with friends and family it's like bringing home uh you know your your art piece or whatever from film school and it's christmas time and you're going please let me see my parents understand that this was money well spent or or like all that all those student loans made sense you want to not just impress but you just want to like share you know i mean filmmaking is such a sharing experience and with this particular crowd, I really, I really wanted to share a lot of the sexiness that was in this film. It's a sexy movie. It's a very sexy movie. I mean, based on what you've just said, is it more nerve-wracking screening uh, a film for an audience that you feel that you have the affinity with, that you do with the Fantastic Fest crowd? Oh, um, 100%. I actually had that happen a couple of days ago with Beyond Fest as well, which is in Los Angeles, which is kind of like the... Um, uh, the cousin to Fantastic Fest in a way. Um, they're they're like there's the Fantastic Fest crowd and there's the Beyond Fest crowd, and there there's a lot of overlap between them. Films, the filmmakers, the, a lot of the fans who go to both. Um, there is a an acceptance and a Todd Browning esque one of us sensibility with both of these festivals that I have. So whatever I can, and I've shown the movie a couple times now at festivals which we've been calling the Fleshable Tour. <laughs> my putting my marketing cap back on um but being able to like show this around the world has been so exciting because you know this movie touches upon particular themes that you know not everybody is you know very comfortable talking with they, they sex and gender fluidity sexual fluidity stuff like that now i don't know about you but um watching certain movies that have sex scenes in it with family members 
can sometimes be a little uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. I'll never forget uh, watching Wild at Heart with my mom. Uh, big mistake. Just telling <laughs> you right now. Don't. don't I, I do not recommend it at all. Um, but with with this movie in particular, this was a, a very personal film to me you know, for many reasons. One of which being that um, you know Stuart Gordon was uh, one of my idols, and to be able to express our feelings towards this particular filmmaker with a movie that was um, was going to be directed by him that he never got to do with a lot of his collaborators. Um, this one was personal. This was like Jaws the Revenge's tagline. This time, <laughs> it's personal. So to, to show it at Fantastic Fest, you know, or Beyond Fest or a lot of these festivals that I, you know, had lineage with, yeah, man, it it, it means a lot. It, it makes it a lot more nerve-wracking. There's a couple festivals coming up that I have no allegiances to where I'm just like, I got this, you know, mm. not saying that, that all of you guys are not special, I swear, in, in Winslow State, but when you come home to family in those respects, there, there is the hard race is a little bit uh, uh, harder and the pulse quickens a little bit because there's nothing worse than seeing a family member like, so what'd you think? And they're like, I'm going to go get eggnog and like <laughs> walk away. You're like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. All right, whatever. I. It's I mean, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it once because I thought of it, and so why waste it? But it is a movie that gets under your skin, pun intended. Um, tell me what it's been like talking to people after they've seen this film with you, the filmmaker, because it's a movie that asks a lot of questions, and it's a movie that certainly stayed with me after I saw it. It's a how to describe it it's a dangerous film i don't think movies like this are made too often these days and i'd love to know the response you've been getting from people having watched it um that's i'm, I'm glad that you asked that alex because that's one of the main reasons why we made it um one of the things that i love about going to film festivals i love going to um you know particular movies especially retro movie theaters like the new beverly in la or the prince charles in london I love going to see movies there because there are people, there is a contingent of an audience that wants to talk about the movie, not during the movie, that's a no-no, <laughs> afterwards, to go to a pub, to go to a cafe, to come home, you know, like on the drive home, whatever, or just stand outside the, uh, the marquee and just talk about the movie. I miss movies like that. A lot of films, you know, I don't, know, I don't want to particularly poo-poo anything in you know, in particular. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of films are washing over people and not allowing them to have these discussions. And I honestly, I mean, with, with the way that the world is right now in terms of sexuality, how puritanical it's become, how conservative it's become lately, um, you know, how films are in one form or another reflecting that, but also reflective of that. And with this movie, you know, we knew with that sex was going to be a story component and a character component. If you, you know, there's too many movies in the, in, in, in the past have usually thrown in a sex scene because they know that they have to see a coupling between the two hot leads and it leads to some kind of chemistry that leads to some kind of moistness. And, and then you just continue the plot with no ramifications. This was such a huge component of it that if we didn't address a lot of the themes like the gender fluidity, like the fact that, you know, here is this entity that is somewhat sexless, that is exploiting, you know, the, the female form. Oh boy, I have never heard that, that concept before. <laughs> um, but also, be, you know, becoming free with your sexuality. Like the fact that this film is very queer, that it is very sexually fluid, you know, if, and we didn't want to spoon feed it to them either. 
We didn't want it to be like here message, or I don't know if you're a fan of like uh, uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans, but he would have movies where he would like pop up in the background and go message and then pop <laughs> out again. Like we didn't want that, but we wanted to at least give the audience a nice roller coaster ride. Hopefully they walk out feeling a little bit amorous and maybe it'll lead to something later. Good luck. But also if it, if it gets, like you said, if it gets under your skin and it makes you pose questions about yourself, about your partner, about, you know, the, how you express yourself with sex in general, I feel like we've done our job. So every conversation that I've had with this, like that it goes past like the usual, like it was fun or whatever, um, usually devolves into people kind of not, I shouldn't say exposing at least talking about not the film itself, but their own sexuality and, you know, and within the, their comfortability, of course, um, I seem to be a pretty good conversationalist. So immediately we start talking about that. Um, but it, but it's nice. It's really nice that people can feel more open about talking about it because it's been a while since there's been something like the last thing I can think of was maybe um, recently with, at least in the States with sex education, when that show came out, people started talking about sex more and like, Oh my God, kids have stuff like that. <laughs> like, but then you go, dude, they've been having sex like that for fucking generations. It's just, you needed a show to at least get you pissed off or make, give you a reaction enough to talk about it. So even if this movie pisses people off, which it has, and that thing rightfully so good, because at the very least it's getting under your skin and hopefully it'll make you ask questions or even want to start a dialogue about it. And, I've sort of I've skirted around sort of exactly what the film is about because I think I, I walked into it without knowing anything and I I love that experience. Oh really? Yeah, it happens so rarely these days in this job, but I I went in cold and so it unfolded in front of my eyes. I saw it happening in real time. I didn't know anything, had no expectations. Oh wow! Oh, it was whoo! It was incredible. It was an incredible experience, Joe. Um. Tell for someone who's going, oh, suitable flesh. Well, how would you describe it without spoiling it? Because I, 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 it. I, I, you know what I'm asking, really. Of course. Well, uh, the the elevator pitch. Right, we're in we're on ground floor. We got mm. uh, to floor twelve. Okay, I'm going to make this very quick. So the elevator pitch of this is uh, it's a an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep. That's also a love letter to the late great Stuart Gordon, the director of From Beyond and Reanimator, amongst other films. Um, but it's a sexy, erotic, cosmic body swap, sexually fluid horror thriller, erotica, noir erotica that takes place in this particular world that has been established by a previous director. Okay, well, on floor five, but the film's about a successful therapist who meets his troubled young man who comes to her office. He's desperate for help, but that is the inciting incident that sets off this string event, a string of events that plunge that doctor into a world of obsession and forbidden desire madness cosmic body horror and it affects her and everyone around her okay and we've hit floor 12 what do you think uh, yeah did it. Uh, that that did it for me man that did it for okay, me good. I lo- it made me want to watch the whole thing again um so a, a couple of things first of all um, i i've read the hb lovecraft short story uh, the thing on the doorstep uh, if it, it unsettled me when i read it if it's possible your film unsettled me more but i wanted to talk to you about the casting decision of casting slightly older actors because i think the age of the cast that you've picked for these roles is kind of key to what the movie 
is giving you as an audience member. I, I think it would have been a very different film had you cast younger people in those roles. Mm -hmm. Well, considering that we're dealing with medicine and we're dealing with um, you know, science in certain respects, you know, one of the the main um, influences of this movie is, of course, uh, Reanimator and From Beyond. And both those films with Reanimator, you're dealing with med students. So you can get away with having some younger characters as the protagonist. With From Beyond, one of the major criticisms of that movie, and I love this movie, mind you, is that um, Barbara Crampton's character, Catherine McMasters, is supposed to be playing a doctor, and she looks like she's 23. So unless she's fucking Doogie Hauser or something like that, where she just kind of breathes through, um, you know, uh, gro gross anatomy and all that shit, and then plunked into a, a, a pretty uh, posh um, like sort of situation professionally, it didn't make any sense. And we, you know, with this story, the original story, thing on the doorstep was um, it was the the two protagonists were male. And now, when I first got the script, I was excited about it because I'm like, I love this story. I, you know, I knew about it before, and I love Stewart's work and to be able to you know pay homage to him. The only thing was that in this day and age, and you know, and we did we wanted wanted this to be a reflection of the current purview of um the, the current purview of perversity if you will God, i want to write that one down um <laughs> but just the way that you know film and stories all are all are depicting a particular you know audience member or a particular you know kind of subset of human being usually these stories are with older men and younger women or you know that dynamic that has been you know was in every erotic thriller in the 90s whatever i always joke like you know, if you cast Michael Douglas in this part, no one would, you know, bat an eyelash. But if you tried to make that movie today in this cultural language and in this slight timestamp, I, I think it would have been more problematic in a way that we didn't want and, and didn't want to deal with. So on the flip side, though, like immediately when I thought, what if we made this to women and everything clicked, everything, it made it more palpable for the profession it made it more exciting to me because look, I think, you know, women, you know, older women are incredibly sexy. They know that they're incredibly sexy. We've heard for years. That was always that thing that you grew up in high school where it's like, oh, man's sexual peak hits at 18. Women's sexual peak hits at 36. And you're like, wow, really? <laughs> oh, crazy, mind blown, you know, and, and truth be told, you know, I think there aren't enough of these types of stories that geared towards older women that you know we're not saying that we're making the joy luck club or anything or like the the first wives club not the joy luck club the first <laughs> wives club um or 80 for brady you know it's like women you know women can be sexy in any generation you just have to have the right story to fit them in that allows them to flaunt that or it allows them to challenge that so once we flip those genders then it it like the floodgates of creative ideas but also and if you know Stuart gordon's work he tended to be dangerous. He tended to be a provocateur. And I love provocative cinema. I love movies from like David Cronenberg and, and um, Paul Verhoeven and, uh, you know, uh, David Cronenberg, but Brian De Palma, big Brian De Palma fan. He knew how to push buttons. So to be able to play with all of those elements and once we locked in on the idea for the story, it just blossomed into all of these ways that we can be dangerous but also serve an audience that I don't think has been served in genre films these days, you know? And, and, and again, 
I think everybody can enjoy this in one form or another, but you haven't seen these, you know, this particular type of person in a horror movie being served. It's usually they're playing the professional or the mom or, you know, hapless victim number three when the serial killer starts going crazy down the street. You don't get them as the leads. And that was really important to us. And I think something that I, 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 I felt watching it that I think ties into what you're saying is Jonathan Schenk's uh, performance in this movie. There's Bring something that happens just, I think it's just over halfway through, really surprises you. Like you think you've got a handle on a character and then whammy, this whole other side to him comes out. I, I know you've worked with him before on a creep show, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Tell me, tell me about what you wanted from him and, and his reaction to hearing the kind of character he'd be playing because it is very different to, I think, like you said, the kind of people we're normally going to be seeing in these kind of films. So this is, I, I want to diatribe for one second. This is what I love about you, Alex, is that I remember specifically having this conversation with you at three o'clock in the morning at our <laughs> friend's house and having going like, this guy, that's fucking cool. Like, I really enjoy the fact that you just out of the blue went, tell me all about Check and why he was doing what he was doing. And I'm like, you know, we should really do this again sometime. And you made it work. Um, but with, you know what, with Sheck, here's the thing with, with this movie, not only, you know, one, one of the elements that I didn't really talk a lot about before is the word film noir and, or the concept of film noir, or the fact that film noir has had many permutations over the years. And, you know, when people think of film noir, a lot of times they think of like, you know, the detective cap and the film, you know, the, the femme fatale and the doting wife and the hapless protagonist and a lot of you know, the shadows and people getting pushed downstairs and shit and smoking guns from the 40s. And then, you know, in the 90s, when you had directors like um, John Dahl and even Verhoeven or Adrian Lyne creating uh, even Tarantino to a, to a degree, but he was making it his own, the neo-noir era kind of sprouted with a lot of the same influences that the films from the 40s did, but they all have a lot of the same ingredients so to speak you know like i was saying you had you have the um almost hapless protagonist that is thrust into the situation whether it's by their own doing or you know someone strolls through their door and they have to make a fateful choice which usually leads to a cautionary tale you have the femme fatale you know the sultry sexual being that you know kind of tempts them into whatever the situation is but you also had the doting house wife, if you will, that was there at home to kind of show complacency at home and then allow the audience and the protagonist to, you know, kind of be lured into temptations and then thus creating that uh, that cautionary tale. So when we were developing the script even further, I was like, I would love to do something like a film noir structure with this, make it feel because Lovecraft story was already there. Once we started playing with it a little bit more, I was like, you know what? A lot of these, a lot of my favorite film noirs, this fits perfectly in the structure. You know, Judah's character, who, you know, is playing one of the embodiments of the entity at this point, who walks into Elizabeth Derby's door. He is not a femme fatale. He's a home fatale. He's the male version of the femme fatale. And at the same time, and, and Heather's character is that hapless protagonist who's being thrust into the situation, sometimes literally. Um, with the husband at home, you know, he was a little um, more nebulous at first before we started to really play with the script. And, you know, but again, I was like, you know, it'd be great to do two things. One, it would be great to have two sides of the 
male objectivity for Elizabeth Derby to choose from. And this is where, you know, like I wanted to play with the expectations of film, uh, of film, uh, film noir, where, you know, a lot of times the way that the, the femme fatale is shot, or even the way that the uh, hapless wife is shot, they are shot in ways and they are two sides of the coin. You know, in this case, we wanted to kind of go more queer where we were taking Judah as the twink and um, Sheck as the bear in a way. So I specifically told Sheck, do not shave your chest. He hated it. <laughs> Fucking hated it. He was so mad. He's like, but look how ripped I am. And I'm like, nope, nope. You gotta go full bear, my friend. If Judah's gonna be twink, he's gotta be bear. But we needed to have that dichotomy. So I had, um, you know, worked with Jonathan on Creep Show off of a recommendation of another filmmaker, Stephen Miller, had said, you gotta work with Sheck. And I've always loved him in other movies, but I just never had an opportunity. And we were casting Creepshow, and it was literally 24 hours before we had to make a decision and we started shooting. And a text turned into a phone call, turned into him jumping in a car and driving, you know, over three state miles or three state lines to get to us to shoot. And he was amazing. He was so great to work with. So when we were putting the cast together for this, you know, I was, I walked in one day and my, my partner just goes like, we're not checking the, in the housewife role. And like, it's right there and it literally took me 20 minutes on a text once i explained to him exactly what i wanted and i said look every every time you make a movie you walk on set on set you are the alpha male you were always the alpha male what if you were the beta male here and like you know like when you're texting someone and you see like the little dot 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 (laughs) dot 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 yeah like you can tell he's like toiling with something (laughs) but then ultimately after like the fourth dot 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 he went fuck yeah i'm in and that was it but once i but i had to explain to him it's like i you have to be the victim here you know like you have to be the person that is being the most affected in a way that you have no control over but at the same time we get to get kinky too we also get to show that everyone has their own fetishes and their own things that are being repressed by whatever society their own hang-ups or what have you and Sometimes, uh, you know, a shape-shifting, body-swapping entity coming into your life, not necessarily a bad thing. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, He's fantastic in it. The film is fantastic. I think we're going to touch on it a little more as we go on this journey. But right now, Joe, it's time to leave this reality and enter another dimension. A dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip the movies so we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer there's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer the hum of anticipation it's your perfect cinema trip joe who have you picked living or dead to go with you all right so um i go to the movies a lot and who i pick to go to the cinema is something that i've cultivated over the years i've realized that like there are the way that I want to watch movies is very particular. I like both interaction. I like a little bit of conversation, you know, like within respectful reason of everyone around me. But um, I want to be immersed in it. And I don't want to feel like I am putting that person out. They're judging me secretly. This has happened many times before. I had a birthday when I was like 11 and took everyone to go see Fletch, um, Fletch Returns or something like that. And it ruined everyone's birthday or, you know, there's something that, that you have to remember about when you partner up with someone in terms of or gather a group of people. If you're the one who's curating, curating the movie, if people love it, they give you high praise. If they hate it, 
you might not get that chance again. So I don't like that, put that pressure on myself. So uh, the person that I pick, and this is just me being, you know, like biased here, but uh, I'm going to pick my partner, Rebecca Howard, who um, has been, you know, for the last couple of years, my, to me, like the, the perfect partner I've never had to be able to go to these movies and sit there and watch where we can discuss a little bit about the movie before, whether it's, you know, a retro film, a new film, what have you, we can uh, uh, enjoy the movie objectively without sitting there going like, why did I take her to go see this movie? Oh, <laughs> dear God. And then we can walk out and discuss the movie and we can discuss it, you know, both analytically, we can uh, like speak about it in a craft sort of form. It's not like one of the things, you know, that we love to, to discuss is like particular ways that um, filmmakers edit uh, a certain movie or even shoot a certain movie when you can break it down after you've especially like having just been through this with this movie you start to see movies differently and it's always nice to also be able to go with someone who can also turn off their brain and be like i just want to watch you know like uh, a fast movie and not you know fast and furious movie and just not think about things but then if we want to get analytical we can do that too so that's She's an important part of my life in many respects. Uh, you met her at, uh, yes. in Austin uh, a couple of weeks back. And um, so for me, it's like that's the perfect person that I can both turn on and turn off at the same time and be able to let the movie wash over us, but in a way that makes me really excited for afterwards too when we come out into the foyer again and be able to discuss. And was it was it a happy accident when you discovered that you were the perfect movie watching partners the first time you went to the cinema together? Was a, there a, a little bit of trepidation on your part? What if what if this isn't the perfect cinema going partner? Oh, oh my God, it's terrifying! Like, <laughs> uh, and I'll I'll never forget it. It was actually um, it was the movie. It was uh, Richard Stanley's Hardware, and we were in um, we were at a film festival, and I was nervous because it's like, oh God, what is she talking? during the movie or what if it's like what if she got clammy hands you know that that's kind of weird or like you know what if she doesn't like the movie because i programmed the movie too so i was like especially nervous and it was perfect because at one point she leans over and says she i think she gave me like a bit of trivia it's like you know that you know that there was a part in the movie where they couldn't shoot on the sand so they had to shoot on a set and i'm just like yeah i knew that <laughs> but i liked hearing you say it um th that's that's to me, that's the perfect movie, like going partner. So when up until that point, I don't think we had had the opportunity to, um, no, actually it was even before that it was, um, I don't know if you remember this movie at all, but, um, I also programmed a screening of this movie called the hidden, um, which is, uh, this great body swap movie from the eighties, uh, that new line put out. And, uh, it was the first time that she'd ever been to the, um, Alamo draft house. So we went there. And, uh, and again, it was the same thing. It was like there was a perfect conversation symbiosis between us being able to watch this movie, but also watch each other, watch the movie, have a little bit of a conversation, eat fried pickles at the Alamo Draft House. You can't go wrong. <laughs> you know, so once you can and and you know what, for certain places like dine in places, you want to make sure that you're going with someone that is not going to sit there and judge you when you're like shoveling buffalo <laughs> cauliflower in your mouth and be like, this movie's awesome, right? You know, like you got, you got to make sure that that's, uh, you know, dealt with responsibly. Wonderful. Well, it's you and Rebecca going to the cinema. Now there's a clock on the wall in the foyer, Joe. It reads a specific okay. time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Now, here's the question. This is the, the this is, I, I'm, I'm asking a question with a question. If we're, we do a lot of movie marathons. Um, I, I, we 
program like sometimes anywhere from three to six movies on a Friday night or even at the multiplex. We've done it before where we jump from movie to movie. Now, if we're marathoning, it's the start of the day because we want to make sure we're watching a few movies. Now, if this is just one movie, and which I believe that it is, it's really going to watch one movie, yeah. Um, then I would say 7 p.m. Uh, the 7 to 7.30 um, window is perfect because you're getting people who are serious enough about cinema that they're going to actually miss dinner. Um, and they'll probably want to go to a diner afterwards to be able to discuss. But you're also, you know, you're getting the good crowd that has probably gotten off on a work day and they want to just, you know, unwind, see a really good flick. Because once you get into the later hours, um, like you run into people that might be falling asleep, sometimes at midnight movies, you know, like things, depending on the movie, some you know, some audiences can get a little bit uh, funky, what have you. Seven o'clock to me seems like the perfect time to be able to watch the movie then go out and maybe um, like we do all the time at the New Beverly, we'll go across the street and go to the El Coyote, which was uh, factored prominently in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a great uh, Mexican restaurant. Have a margarita, have some nachos and talk about the movie. And you have a two to three hour window of solid movie experiential kind of conversation going forth. So that to me is like the perfect time. That sounds absolutely wonderful. 7 p.m., classically quite a busy screening. Do you enjoy a busy screening room, that collective experience? Oh, 100%. Like, there's nothing, to me, there's nothing better. As long as the crowd is into it, um, there's nothing better than, especially now that days have changed where you would have to line up for hours before to be able to get a good seat. Whereas now, I can look up and make sure that I, you know, have my perfect seat I am, which I do this all the time. I'll buy those tickets weeks in advance so that I know that I have the perfect seat, which I know we're going to get to. But if that crowd fills up, there is nothing better, whether it's your film, especially if it's someone else's because then the pressure is off, but to feel the whole crowd getting into it. Like we just saw Talk to Me and feeling that crowd soaking up that movie is, it just made it better. It just made it much more of a roller coaster experience. If the crowd's not into it, then not so much. But I prefer as long as people are being respectful to the filmmakers. And, you know, if this is our perfect scenario, then everybody is put their phones away. Everyone's sitting there ready to, you know, to have a good time. And they're going to be respectful to the filmmakers without making fun of them. But they're ready to go on a ride. So, yeah, full full house is always good for me. Okay, well, you hinted at this already. You have your own perfect seat. So where in the auditorium, Joe, are we going to be sitting? So we are going to be sitting in row H, seats nine and 10. And when you start making movies, you start hearing where, especially like when you're mixing uh, a movie, I um, I got to mix uh, one of my films, Mayhem, uh, and actually Everly as well. I got to mix them in these really fancy schmancy high-end pro theaters that are in LA. And um, when you talk to the mixer, you know, being a movie dork, the like I am, I'm like, what are your, I would ask the mixers, mixers, what are your favorite seats? And I love surround sound. I love feeling like I have been plopped right into the middle of Jurassic Park. So I want to feel everything around me and everything. So um, I would ask them and they, all of them said, I believe it was around the same area it was row eight which is dead square in the middle and then right in the middle of that so you are getting the full blast of the subwoofer you're getting every you know every speaker in that theater is pointed at you so 
it, to me, it's the most immersive area possible. Now, if I don't like going to the bathroom, every time that I've gone to the bathroom in movies, I've missed a crucial element. The first time I did it was during Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I missed out on the big ball, almost squishing Indiana Jones. <laughs> this was back in 81. I vowed I would never go to the bathroom again. So if you go with someone who likes to go to the bathroom during the movies, so Be- Be- Becca checks off that box. You know, go before the movie starts. You've seen the trailers before. You know that you're going to see the same freaking trailers again. So go to, go before the movie, and then like then you know that you're stuck there for the next two hours and you're not going anywhere. And that's that's like a perfect spot for me. I love it. That's the most specific seating arrangement I've ever had. Row H, seats nine and ten. They're yours. So the final thing we need before we leave the foyer. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. Joe, what are you choosing to eat? Easy peasy. Uh, it is going to just be a big tub of popcorn freshly popped, and I'm the asshole that will wait in line and see that the you know the popper is like in the background and the little thing is spinning, and I'll wait. I'll actually back myself up in line. A couple people go, oh, no, no, you guys go first waiting for that moment when you see the popper go <laughs> and all the and it just looks like this this like big iron giant looking mouth just opens up and all this popcorn starts vomiting out that to <laughs> me is fucking bliss alex that, that like that is my like i i get i get a little bit of a cinnaboner when i see that and i'm like perfect it is because there's nothing worse than if you've gotten the dregs and they're going all the way at the bottom and you're just getting like curls and seeds and shit it's like no no bueno like i'm i got i'm paying top quality for this crap like i i want it to be as good as possible so i will wait back a little bit and make sure that the, the popcorn is perfectly popped and just get a big tub of popcorn and uh you know lately i've been kind of uh you know easing up on the sugars so we get like a nice big iced tea and then you have enough sustenance to go and you know for at least the duration of the film so what is on this popcorn? Is this a, this is butter? You have the you having the butter on yeah. the popcorn, right? Okay. Now, yes. Um, now, to be fair, it's not really butter when you go to like an AMC or anything like that. And I don't know if it's like this in certain because I know no offense, but UK popcorn sucks. I think you know it better than anybody else. It's it's, it's fair. not the best. It's fair. Yeah. It's fair at best. Every yep. time that I've gone over there, you know, and seen a movie, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm but I'm spoiled. Because um, when you go to the New Beverly, which is Tarantino's theater in L.A., um, they get the best kernels. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if they're handpicking the kernels. You can see Quentin out there going like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I don't know. But they use real butter. And there is something that is incredibly, wonderfully decadent when you're sitting there in that theater eating real butter on the popcorn. I have to allot myself, um, you know, if we're going on a, a a weekly jaunt, which we usually do to the theater, I have to like go. Okay, you know, I, I might have to sacrifice eating something decadent the rest of the week if I want this popcorn. God damn it, it's worth it. So yes, <laughs> only if it's real butter, but butter on the popcorn. I love it. We have everything we need. Let's leave the foyer now and push open the door into the corridor towards the auditorium. Now the corridor is looking a little bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up some posters on the wall to illustrate some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm putting up depicts, Joe, your fondest movie memory. Oh, man. Uh, now, I've, I've talked about this movie before um, many times. Um, 
It's a movie that's near and dear to my heart, but it is also the movie that changed my life. Um, and I'll never forget it. Uh, at the 310, October, uh, sorry, August 6th screening at the Brookhaven Multiplex, and that is Chuck Russell's The Blob, uh, the remake of The Blob that came out in 88. Uh, this is a movie that I, up until that point, Alex, I wanted to be either a makeup effects artist or an actor. So I wanted to be like that Tom Savini, the guy from, you know, Dawn of the Dead and, and from Dust Till Dawn. He was kind of like that one-two punch kind of like actor, but more importantly, he was a makeup effects artist. So I wanted to be one of those guys but because I was interested in genre and I was interested in making monsters, but I also, I, I loved actors, you know, so the, like those elements were really important to me. Um, but it wasn't until seeing that movie and seeing how if some reason I figured out, I cracked the code. I went, wait, so the director guy, he works with the actors. He works with the makeup effects artists. He gets to help shoot it. Um, or at least tell them where to put the camera. He's part of the editing process, which I just started getting into. He loves doing the stuff with the music. Like that, that guy or girl is definitely like the captain of the ship in a way. Not that I was like, I need to be a leader. But it was that I get to get my hands in all of that stuff. That's what I want to do. So, uh, you know, the blob for me was integral. The thing is, what's great about saying that movie is that it's not like some weird rando movie that I pulled out of my ass. Like, oh, man, you know, like Lethal Weapon 3. That was a movie that made me want to be a director. You know, it's like and then you'd go back and go Lethal Weapon 3 and maybe two, but less three. The blob has held up as one of the signature kind of 80s remakes. But even if you didn't even know it was a remake, if you just show someone for the first time and you go, you know, if you want to see a great monster movie that respects the audience, that pulls no punches, that can be unrelenting at points, but still is a great script with great acting and amazing special effects that still hold up to this day. And in this day and age of, you know, scrutiny through Blu-ray formats or even just like better effects over the years. The blob is up there to me. And I think a lot of people have rediscovered it thanks to um, it being on Blu-ray in the last couple of years. It's up there with the thing or the fly as being like two of like one of the best monster movies of the eighties or even of all time. So that, that one gets the big um, like marquee, like flashlights all over <laughs> when we walk in big time yeah i i mean it, it's so fascinating to hear you put it next to the fly and the thing because that's the thing i haven't seen it for years but i remember being really like there's some upsetting visuals in terms of the blob dissolving people in that movie it's it's yep. not yeah it's tony not- gardner tony gardner who did the effects for that um and lyle gardner the guy who did the actual blob stuff they were what they did was like because in the original blob it was like the joke was it's just killer jello. It just like covers you up and you probably suffocate or whatever. No, in this one, it's like made of acid. So if that thing jumps on you, your body is going to melt. It's it's basically it's consuming you. It's dissolving you. It's you know like a, like a Venus flytrap, but with a or and like mixed with the alien from Aliens, where it got like you know acid for blood. There was something so terrifying about. If that thing covered you up, you were going to have a very unfortunate day and probably the most painful death possible. That terrified me, man. 
I love it. We're putting a poster up for 1988's remake of The Blob. Okay, let's carry on down the corridor. The second poster I'm going to put up depicts, Joe, your worst movie memory. Well, uh, okay. Um, Now, I don't have the movie itself. Um, I think I blocked it out. No, I nope. It just came to me. Holy shit! Okay, <laughs> and it's unfortunate because it's a it's a great movie. Um, it's uh, Russ Meyer's uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and uh, I love the movie. The movie's great. We actually did a Russ Meyer double feature that day, um, but this was at the New Beverly. And I look, I, I'm I'm a huge devotee of the New Bev. It's one of my you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm still in LA because I don't want to move away from that theater. I love it too much. Um, <laughs> it's been so good to us over the years. Like it, it's it, to me, it's church. But now when I did um, the podcast for the show, uh, for the new Beverly, the, the pure cinema podcast, we did a calendar episode and you know, they were nice enough to say like any, you know, it's one of those things you're walking away. It was a great episode. And you're like, anything you want, just let us know. I'm like, you know, I would love, I'd love to be able to sit all the way in the back. There's something about like being able to sit in the back and like watch the audience kind of take this all in. That's one of the few theaters I don't like to be row H nine and 10, because I just like seeing everybody kind of take it all in. And it's just, it's, and, but I also, I love being able to step in and out of the theater. Like for a retro theater like that, you don't feel as bad being able to like go to the bathroom and not have to worry about it and stuff like that. So we just started to get used to sitting all the way in the back because it also felt like a little less intrusive. So I had asked them, Hey, do you mind if I sit in the back for this double feature? And in most cases, they usually say, "Yeah, no problem, Joe. Joe, it's fine." You know, and I'm like, "Hey, that's me. Look at me. <laughs> Membership has its privileges." Um, and uh, boy, oh boy, the one day that I don't ask, because uh, like we we got in there, we got in kind of late, and usually that back row is reserved, and they usually just kind of leave it alone, or like any time that Quentin or any of his cohorts decide to show up, they leave it open. So I thought like, and eh, they won't mind. I've done it a couple times before. The one time I didn't ask. And and we also had, uh, Becca and I had a friend in from town who was um, another festival programmer. So we were all vibing and everything. And I swear to God, Alex, I was actually saying like, God, it's so cool that like they, they've been so nice to us. And I feel like the, so like privileged that I get to you know sit in the back here. Literally two minutes later, one of the ushers comes up and goes, "You're not supposed to be here. You like you you like like who said you can do that?" I'm like, "Uh, uh well, in in the past, I said that they was I I was a stammering fool, and they, now it's one thing if they, they're doing it like quietly, like outside, and they usually do that if they kick someone out for a phone, they don't make a big public spectacle. This guy was having a bad fucking day and decided to take it out on whoever. I guess it was me." I have no clue where I wasn't heckling. We were just sitting there. He came over and loudly is berating us for being there in those seats. And I'm like, yeah, but I usually they say that it's totally fine. Did you ask this time? Well, no, but you can't do that. Like the guy just like ripped me a new asshole. And I will not lie. It took me days to get over that experience because not only was it because I could feel people around me going, you know, like that gift yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that you see that people use from Shrek. Or, you know, no, it's like Puss in Boots where someone goes, well, that <laughs> yes. was everybody around me. And, you know, our friend who was just kind of like, oh, shit. You know, it's like 
I was so embarrassed. I like, I couldn't, um, I, I really, I couldn't show my, my, my face in public or whatever for date. <laughs> didn't matter. No one, no one actually gave a shit. Um, I actually ran into, um, Phil at the new bed, like right after. And I explained it to him and he, he was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, I, anytime that I'm there or Michael, the productionist is there, they, they always know that I'm totally cool, but they just, this one person, I guess just was not up to speed with that situation. And I'm sorry that that happened. You know, now if, if it, that, if that happened anywhere else, whatever, but this was like, this was home to me. So it was like weird being yelled at, at the, at, at the dinner table, so to speak. But yeah, that was the worst, but that was during, uh, or right before faster pussycat kill kill. Oh, man, that's I, I hate that story, but I appreciate why it is your worst movie memory. I, I'm going to put up a poster of the roped off back row at the New Beverly. Would that work? Would that be the right thing to put? That's up? fine. Yeah, I'll I'll be fine with that. Okay, okay. Did you ever see the guy again? Is he like? Cause is he a regular staff member there? Did you ever go, hey, yes. buddy? And. And he, he didn't even recognize the situation. He's like, hey, Joe, what's up? And I'm just like, you know what? It's not even worth, it's not even worth starting the shit on. You know, it's like, hey, what's going on, dude? You know, it's like, hey. And then I would go, do you mind if I sit in the back? And he's like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. It's totally fine. So, yeah, that was, hey, good times. All right, then. Our third and penultimate poster we're going to put up in the corridor depicts, Joe, the last performance that brought you to tears. Okay, now this is one now, like because and I had two because I wasn't sure if we wanted to go old movie, new movie. If we, I'll go very quickly with the new movie if we wanted to, but I think the old one will work better. Um, when I saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, I think it was the experience of seeing Harrison Ford again as Indiana Jones. Like I said, one of my first movie going experiences was Raiders of the Lost Ark. So to see this character traverse over the years and grow up as I grew up. And having this very big nostalgic moment, and there's a moment towards the end that is just di- literally dialing up the <laughs> dial of destiny for us to be like, oh god, it's Indiana Jones! Oh my god! So I got a little misty out there, but the the last film that I can remember that really got me, and this is one that I don't think a lot of people know about, and they should. Um, it's a 1946 film called Humoresque. Uh, it's directed by um, Jean Negolasco. Negolasco, I can never say his name. But it's um it stars uh, John Gar- uh, John Garfield, Oscar Levant, um a great actor Oscar Levant, but also Joan Crawford, and we were going on a, a bit of a Joan Crawford kick lately, and this one movie came up, and it's about um uh the kind of rags to riches story of this very talented violinist and how um uh this kind of bourgeois woman manager like decides to support him, falls in love with him, and. The, the, like the the whole film is just this wonderful rise to fall to rise to fall like it, it's it, it's gorgeous the gore the one thing that i will say if anyone listening to this and decides to watch this film I, I believe it's it's all over the place it's you can find it either on youtube or it, i believe it was on criterion collection at one point um when you watch the movie and even if you look at like clips like stop what you're doing go to youtube look up humor-esque and watch a clip of john garfield playing the violin after you do that, realize that those are not his hands. There is one violinist, one expert violinist on his left hand, or like using his left hand, and then another expert violinist using his right hand. 
and they are crowded around John Garfield in the frame. So if you're like looking at me right now, this is another dude and this is another dude and they are playing the violin like they are versatiles. I swear to God, I thought John Garfield knew how to play the violin. No, it's two other people playing it. And anyway, it, it, it is a virtuosic piece of cinema, but there's a moment at the end that Joan Crawford is in. And I was never a big Joan Crawford fan until recently. I always just knew her as you know, the, the, the character, the caricature that was created by Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest. You know, there was the caricature of who Joan Crawford was, which was this kind of, for all intents and purposes, this monster um, that was portrayed in the press and the media and pop culture over the years. So I didn't really get to enjoy a lot of her movies in, in the right way, the right, the way that like some, uh, you know, some audience members got to. Um, but in Humor-esque, there's a scene at the end on the beach that is so unbelievably sad. And when you go on this journey with these two characters and, and you know, follow, and for most of the movie, Joan Crawford is not the bad guy, but she's, um, she's a little femme fatalish in this film. You know, she's one of the reasons why John Garfield's um, character kind of goes where he goes and, you know, he makes out on his own volition but she kind of goaded him on a little bit. It's a very complex relationship of back and forth. But there's a moment at the end that I did not expect. I remember sitting on the couch and watching this movie and getting really worked up about it. And this is from an old film from the 40s, using a lot of old tricks, but really just tugging at the heartstrings in 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 an organic way, not using too much music, using the sound of the sea that, uh, that really got me. And um, more people need to see this movie. It's called Humoresque, 1946, Joan Crawford. Fucking amazing. Well, I'm putting a poster up, and it's also going on my to-watch list because I, too, have not seen Humoresque. But based on your oh, description, I would love to watch it. Please, that. please, please let me know when you watch it. It's it's one of those movies that's like a bad, bad pocket film where you want to hear what other people think. Just from a technical level, it's stunning. But from a thematic level, too, especially when you're in the arts, um, it's a story that you've heard a million times, not quite like this and, and this effective this early on when the medium was so new. A poster for humor-esque from 1946 is going up and it's time for our final poster before we leave the corridor. And this poster depicts, Joe, your unpopular movie opinion. <laughs> oh man, I have a lot of them, but the one that seems to like really get under people's skin, uh, again, no pun, is uh, I think that um, Peter Berg's Battleship is a fucking masterpiece. I think it's the best Michael Bay movie that Michael Bay never did. I think it's the like it is a perfect encapsulation of a certain time period's ample or like ideal summer movie. Um, it's a fucking board game that got turned into a movie that had absolutely no right to work, and yet it does. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's people that are in their their cars right now, like pulling off on the side of the road to like <laughs> yell at me or whatever. But um, I saw that movie on a whim. I wasn't like I love Peter Berg as a director. I think he's a great, fantastic director from Very Bad Things all the way up to all of his stuff. That um, I think he did like the show called Painkiller that's on um, Netflix right now. He did Patriot Day, Cold Water, um, whatever. Um, a, lot, a lot of movies. Um, a, Friday Night a- Lights. Yeah, what was it? Uh, there's uh, one movie of his that I often quote as one of the greatest action movies I've ever seen. It was called. Was it The Kingdom? 
It was called The Rundown. Uh, oh, one... The Rundown with The Rock. Oh, oh yeah. my God. That movie is fucking fantastic. It's, it's brilliant. It, he, he knows better than most action directors how to depict action in a way that is both fun and exciting and uh, you know, kinetic. He, he just, the guy knows how to freaking shoot. And, uh, and, you know, and he's a great actor as well. Um, this was, um, this was a movie that I did not expect to go in liking. I went into it because I was waiting because my seats that I had for the, um, Sasha Baron Cohen movie, the master were messed up. So I'm like, well, I'll go see battleship. It's probably going to suck. I walked out of battleship. Like that's a summer movie. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm telling everybody around me. And then I walked into the master thinking that was going to be great. And, uh, and it sucked. So, um, yeah, it, it just there's something about that movie that is it knows it's a dumb summer blockbuster movie that it's based on an IP that's based on a, a a board game that has absolutely no right to be a movie, and yet there are so many moments. It's like going to see your favorite band and you're like, you know, play Taking Care of Business, <laughs> and you know that you want them to play that song. And they play all the right notes. This movie plays all the right summer movie notes that you just can't deny how much fun it is. And most people say, what are you fucking crazy? And then to that, I say, watch the movie. And you know what? In most cases, that person will text me afterwards or, you know, email or I'll see them again. And they'll go, you goddamn right. Goddamn fucking Battleship <laughs> was, was really, really good. So we're working, we're slowly working on the cult of Battleship and people will slowly realize that it's a it's a force to be reckoned with. I love it. Our final poster then for your unpopular movie opinion is for Battleship. Okay, let's head out of the corridor now. We push open our final set of doors into the auditorium itself. Now, there is a queue of people hoping to join you and Rebecca in the cinema. Do you want to let them in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, the, the more the merrier. We need for the movie that we're going to be watching, this is, a, I don't know if we're revealing it yet, but um, this is a movie that I've never seen in the theater. And it's a movie that is so important to me that I want to have other people experience it the way that, that I have so often, but never in this context. So let the floodgates open. Well, the crowd go wild. They're pouring into the auditorium. Now, before we get to this movie, and I am interested to talk to you about the movie you've picked, there's a few other things we're going to play on the big screen. And the first thing we're going to play is the trailer for the movie you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Well, that would e that's easy. Um, you know, I, I had another pick, but knowing that this is going to be coming out after the movie comes out. Uh, so Killers of the Flower Moon. Sorry, I've already seen it. It's probably going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge Michael Mann fan and anything that that guy puts a camera to, I am going to be there for. So Ferrari, that's, that, that is maybe the most anticipated movie for me just to get to sit down with my box of popcorn and watch Michael Mann shoot cars. I'm in. Right then, it's the trailer for Michael Mann's Ferrari. We're playing on the screen. Now the next thing we're going to play, Joe, is the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. That is, uh, I, ha I have a lot of those, but the one that always comes up to me, the one that like I'm sure I've been chasing myself for as long as I can remember, you know, wanting to be a filmmaker. Um, because you, 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 like when you're in a theater with an audience and you want to feel the collective, like, yeah! like there's something <laughs> really 
exciting about it. The, the, the way that if you go to a you know football game or if you go to a you know like a sports event, you want that collective cheer to be part of that that experience. And um, I'll never forget it. It was seeing a preview screening of Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, and you're probably thinking like, well, there's a couple of scenes like you know that is there. Maybe the ending. No, it's the scene when Rico drops a grenade into the big bug that happened literally midway through the film. And I had uh, snuck out of a of a film theory class that, that we had a, we had finals that night, and I snuck out of like the preparatory class before just to go see this movie because it was a Paul Verhoeven movie and it was a sci fi movie, and I'm a huge RoboCop fan. I had to see it, and it was free. Big big plus there. So we go and it's a packed house and I will never forget it. Like turning around when that moment happens and the entire audience, and this is no, no one knew what to expect with this movie, but the entire crowd got on its feet as if Guns N' Roses just came out on stage and everyone, like everybody was fucking fist pumping and high-fiving and shit like that. And I'm like, and this is halfway through the movie. Like what's the ending going to be? The ending was great. Nothing will be seeing people like raw rawing like for the middle of Starship Troopers. I love it. I love it. The the Rico Bug Rodeo where he I think he blows open its shell with his gun and then dumps the grenade yep. in it. Yeah. Perfect. Right. We're playing that moment on the big screen. Following that though, we are gonna play Joe what you consider cinema's most shocking moments. Okay, well, there's two, um, and I'll be quick with these. Um, the first one uh, is one that I re-experienced as a moviegoer 11 times in the theater, and that is the hobbling scene from Misery. You watched uh, that 11 I saw that times? Movie, I saw it in the cinema 11 times, and then I would be that creepy kid who sat all the way in the front and turned around <laughs> and watched the audience jump, and they're all going, what the fuck is this kid? Look at, oh my God. Like Then they... <laughs> But they're like they the, that is a culmination of all the tension that that builds up to that moment and that the, the moment of dread when the block comes out and she puts it in between his legs and the sledgehammer comes up oh my and God. the audience is already feeling the dread but they think well they're going to cut away right and then they don't and now it it doesn't linger but when you see James Khan's foot just kind of go yeah. it, like it's not what you'd expect. From a moment like that, you'd expect like blood gushing and like big cracks. No, it's it's almost anticlimactic in the fact that it doesn't have a big reaction. The audience provides that reaction. Mm-hmm. And like, dude, seriously, 11 times I saw in the theater <laughs> just to watch the whole crowd go, <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's intense. And it, like, it, it, it will, it will shake you to the core. Um, this, the one that I, I wanted to bring up that is a lot harder to find, and I, I challenge anyone uh, to find this movie. It's probably online somewhere. Um, but like I was saying, we go to the New Beverly a lot, and they had a double feature um, of, uh, what is it, um, Model Shop, uh, Jacques Demy's Model Shop, which is a great 60s film. But they also played this Bean movie called Hollywood 90028, which is directed by uh, Christina Hornsher. Uh, it stars no one you know. You've probably never heard of this movie. Uh, it's about this young photographer who's just driving around through New York, uh, through Hollywood, just trying to make it as a camera guy in the business. Um, he ends up like working in porn a little bit. He's 
it's kind of like taxi driver in Hollywood, if you will. Um, there's, there's a lot going on and nothing going on at the same time. And probably sounds boring as shit, right? <laughs> until the last, until the last shot of the movie. And I cannot give it away. Maybe if you want, maybe it's on YouTube or whatever. Now I would hope that anyone who's listening to this is intrigued enough to, to at least like watch the movie to get to the final shot because never before have I ever been at the new Beverly and I've seen some fucking movies at the new Beverly. I've watched porn at the new Beverly multiple times and never before have I watched that crowd with myself included and Becca, all of us going, Holy shit. Like everybody did that because you do not see what's coming, coming and you will not see certain things ever again the same way and i like if i give anything more away i'm gi- i'm giving it away but yeah don't um, no i, it, I it need is something to see that this. it will i implore anyone who's listening to this who like who goes and watches the the movie and works their way to that final shot and is not affected to that like by that i ch- like hit me up on social media and let's discuss that's part of the, that's the beauty of it but we all walked out like fucking zombies <laughs> afterwards because it 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 was like as if someone had put a bunch of jack in the boxes in all of our seats and all of us looked down at the same time. We all got punched in the face. <laughs> like collectively, I have never experienced anything like that. And then that theater too. So Hollywood 90028, that is as shocking a moment that I can think of in cinema. I mean, I can think of plenty of them. Like, don't get me started <laughs> on a Serbian film. But that one in particular, that's one that I... Man, I, I will never forget the moment and I'll never forget the film purely for that moment. And you when you see it, you will be affected too. Hollywood nine oh oh two eight. That's the name of the movie. Yes. Right. Great. Well, uh, <laughs> if I wasn't already excited to go through your list of recommendations, I am now. I can't I've got no idea what to expect from that. But yeah, I'm in, man. I'm in. All right. Time to play through the Dolby Atmos speakers. The line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you, Joe? Well, there's so many. Oh, my God. Like I can think of so many, too many. I'm probably going to get yelled at by Becca for like missing all the ones because we have like a quote list that we that we share that we're always oh, quoting nice. other movies. Uh, one of my favorite ones recently was um, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Paul Mazursky's film uh, from the 70s. That's about these two polyamorous couples that are just kind of hanging out. And there's a scene in the movie... Um, where someone at a party just kind of casually goes like, and the gazpacho was astounding. <laughs> I have it written up on our wall, like <laughs> over here. Like, like that's one of those quotes that you just go like, and it just gig- makes you giggle every time. But the, the one, the one piece of um, dialogue that I, I saw when you went, I, I wouldn't say affected me, but it affects me because every time I hear it in other movies and it's used so often, I think about this one moment. And that is, you got to be fucking kidding me in the thing. And now anybody who's listening to this knows exactly the moment that I'm talking about when he says, you got to be fucking kidding me. It's the moment when, you know, one of the guys, like their heads turns into a big spider and it's just kind of casually crawling away (laughs) in the background before for Russell blowtorches it. But it's the way that it's said, I can't remember. And I'm sure there's going to be cineasts out there that would be like actually it was in 
this movie before or that movie before. But when a when a when a line of dialogue gets used like that, and I'm, and I I've used it before in my own films. Um, when you hear it, if it harkens you back to an original source, which in this case, you know, the thing. Every time I hear it in every movie ever since, I always go back to that moment in the thing. And I think that that's partially what filmmakers, screenwriters, directors, they're also trying to capture that moment where the camera's trained on the actor and what they're doing is they're creating dread and tension because if the if and when the camera flips around and sees what's on the other side of that camera or what the actor or the person is looking at in that moment, like you want to justify that line but that to me like there was a lot of a lot of lines but that one to me that one made me go every time i hear it in any other movie i always go back to the thing and when you go back to the thing and you watch that moment you go yeah i get it and it's a nice moment of levity in what is quite a horrific scene i think someone's just absolutely it's it's disgusting and then you (laughs) can have a moment when you see it in a theater and the whole crowd like like depressurizes a little bit when you like la- like you're laughing despite the fact that you've seen something so grotesque and so disgusting that you're just like I don't know how to feel I'm in shock oh nope the movie the filmmakers allowed me to laugh in this moment so I'm still alarmed for the ride there's a moment in Suitable Flesh which I think has a similar DNA which is uh, too much just I was oh, in stitches that's um yeah th- that's almost like the there's someone off in the corner going you gotta be fucking kidding me to <laughs> justify that moment yeah I, I i would almost cut that that moment in from the thing just for that bit but uh but yeah that 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 line always gets me uh right the penultimate thing we are going to do before we screen the movie you've picked for us is play out on the big screen what you consider joe the best use of music in a movie well I think with, and, and I grew up in the era of needle drops becoming so synonymous with films. Um, you know, like again, the one that, the, the one that always comes to mind is I think the, like an, an obvious one, which is stuck in the middle with you from Reservoir Dogs. Um, because that was one of the first times that I was like, I can never listen to that song the same way again without taking you know, that movie, you know, and that's, that is the ultimate goal for every filmmaker is to, like re, um, I guess reclaim the importance of a song to people because they immediately, from a marketing standpoint, go, "Oh, I remember that from that movie or this movie or whatever." I did that in Wrong Turn Two, where I, I shot. Um, I have a, a moment with uh, um, Eddie Eddie Grant's Electric um, Electric Avenue in yes. the in the movie in the beginning, and uh, you know, like I was like, "I'm taking it back," and then six <laughs> months later, fucking Pineapple Express used it. I'm like, "Son of a bitch, they took it from me." <laughs> Um, but that's, that's something that I think like from a selfish standpoint, filmmakers always want to infuse a song's importance or it's relevant or even just it's beat into their storyline and then make them whole, make them together. And the one that I didn't even know was a song in a movie. Um, but then later on, you know, realized like, oh my God, of course, uh, that is, um, the use of Layla in Goodfellas. And anytime you listen to that song, you know exactly the moment in the movie, what, you know, what's going on. There's this montage of showing how Jimmy the Gents, uh, Robert De Niro's character is, is kind of uh, cleaning house, so to speak. And all of the mobsters that he dealt with, with the uh, Lufthansa 
heist are all getting off and they're being found in trucks and they're in the back of cars stabbed and shit like that. And it's this gorgeous instrumental number that I thought was score. I like when I saw that movie in 1990, I had no clue that it had Eric Clapton's arrangement, you know, involved. I didn't realize that that was a song that was on the radio. I just thought it was a great, wonderful little score track that again, changed how you think about like using like fun little ditties in horrifying situations when you hear the, like this, this wonderful little like warm guitar and the, then the pianos. And then you're just seeing like all these people, like you're seeing frozen corpses and you're seeing blood on windows and you're like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? You know, that kind of, um, filmmaking manipulation is something that I've always been striving for. Um, I love that. I love seeing it in movies. I also love doing it in movies. And I think a lot of that came from that very cue in Goodfellas. It's an incredible moment. And I, if I can be completely transparent with you, until you picked it and I looked it up, I didn't know. I always thought it was score. I To this day, I didn't know that was Eric Clapton. Uh, it's, I'm, right? I'm, I, I had no clue. It took yep. me, I think, buying the soundtrack and going, oh, <laughs> Wait, they got Eric Clapton for the score? Like I had no I had no clue, but it just worked so well, you know. Right, Joe, here we are then. It is time now to announce to this packed auditorium and indeed Rebecca the movie you have picked out of all others for us to watch tonight. Joe, what are we watching? Now, this is a movie that is so important to me on so many levels um, from a fan standpoint, from a filmmaker standpoint, and shock of shocks, I still have not seen it on the big screen. So everyone in the audience, including Rebecca, including all of our friends, you're there, Alex. Sorry, you're stuck. You're stuck having to go as well. Um, But everybody there, I want them to be there to experience this movie with me. Uh, for the first time on the big screen, and that is the Coen Brothers' first film, Blood Simple. Wow. What has made you pick this movie to screen, other than the uh, the obvious thing, that you haven't seen it on the big screen? Why do you love this movie? Well, I love the Coen Brothers. Um, they were one of the first filmmakers that when Raising Arizona came out on HBO, I didn't know who they, those guys were, but I did know who Sam Raimi was. And when I realized that Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers work together. I'm like, well, I got to mess with these guys too. I got to see what they're all about. And fun fact, Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona came out on the same exact day in 1986 and both bombed, <laughs> but now are considered classics. But when I saw Raising Arizona, I'm like, these guys are filmmakers. Like I had no clue. And they're, they're brothers. Like how fucking cool is that? Like I was blown away by the sheer like creativity involved with Raising Arizona. And I was a fan for life. So, Mills Crossing came out and Barton Fink came out and Fargo came out and blah, 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 blah. All their movies are classics. I never saw Blood Simple until way later. And I remember seeing it in film school and I liked it a lot, but it, it I, I guess I was expecting more of that zany madcap kind of visualization like, um, like Raising Arizona has. But I remember seeing it in film school and admiring it a lot. But there was also, there's a scene at the end that uh like in the last maybe 20 minutes or so this like unbelievable set piece where francis mcdormand is getting shot out by uh, mm at walsh from across the street and then he comes over 
And then we have the famous uh, shooting bullets through the wall and you see all the lights coming out of it and everything. It's an iconic moment. But it wasn't until I was making um, this film that I did in Serbia called uh, Everly with uh, Salma Hayek. And uh, in the film, we had to literally from my head create an apartment complex, like this, this loft. And one of the things that just popped in my head when we were creating, when I was drawing it out, were these semicircle windows that look like um, kind of, uh, they look like eyes. And that was just something that I was like, I always wanted that. That's like an integral plot point. And then didn't realize until my production designer kind of mentioned it. She goes, you know, that the Coen brothers did that both in Blood Simple and also in Miller's Crossing. I'm like, they did? Wait, I know Miller's Crossing, but Blood Simple, really? So that night, the night before I shot for Everly, I was in Serbia. I was freaking the fuck out. I was like nervous. I was like, it was day one uh, or it was the night before. I was like really panicked and i just thought you know what there's nothing better than watching the first movie from someone that when they've been in the trenches and they had no money and they had no time i'm gonna watch blood simple and i watched it and all of my tension and all of my uh stress went away not only did i see those windows that i'm like i know that those are my windows those are in my movie but when there's something special about watching that movie and realizing that those guys had about a million dollars all crowdfunded back in the day and you can watch that movie as scrappy as it is and you know that the Coen brothers directed that movie and they had no time no resources no you know like no big stars at the time it was mostly their friends and there is a complete command and confidence in that movie that made me so inspired that that next day on set fucking went in gangbusters and killed it so every single movie or tv show that i direct i always watch and i'm i've done this every single time since 2013 i watch blood simple the night before every time because it reminds you it palate cleanses you because when you're in the process of making movies you get so ensconced in the minutiae and all the little details you forget about why you're doing it and what like the the fun factor of it, the, like the fact that this is such a, a an honor that we get to do this, and you got to remember like the the little things, the little details that you later on go, you know what we did? We made a camera go over a drunk guy's head in the same <laughs> shot in a bar, you know, or made Dan Hadea throw up in this like crazy, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld esque, um, you know, like uh, Steadicam shot. There's all these little moments that they have, these little details that they have that mind you that you should be aware of those that you should invest in fighting for you know what there's a shot of the gun that i really want to get you know what 30 40 years later someone's gonna be watching that going i love that shot (laughs) and you fought for it on set and you didn't have time and you didn't have money and you needed that moment and it was worth it so every single time that i make anything suitable flesh included i just did a pilot and i watched it i was up in toronto and i watched it again um, I always watch it because it reminds me of that kind of confidence and that kind of playfulness that those guys had on their first fucking movie. And the, the, the heartbreaking part of it is I've never seen it on the big screen. I've always watched it at home on a laptop. I've seen it so many goddamn times, but to be able to see there's certain moments that I'm sure anybody who's listening to this knows, like there was those moments that I've never had an audience go, oh, or, yeah, or, ha, 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 like, 
never had it. So that's, I want to have that with, if I have my druthers someday, I will have that experience in a theater with an audience and it'll be the night before that we're making our next movie and we can all watch it together. That would be the perfect situation because then everybody else will get as jazzed as I do and it will, will hit the ground running on day one, you know? So it, it benefits me, it benefits them, but at the most you get to see one of the best debuts in cinema history. What a fantastic reason to screen Blood Simple. And Joe, that's it. The curtains are closing. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night at the movies. But before you go, it is time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? Saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So... Okay, your mystery question this week, Joe. As you said at the start, Suitable Flesh was originally going to be directed by Stuart Gordon. What film of Stuart Gordon's would you recommend as people's way in to that man's work? Well, the obvious one would be Reanimator. If you haven't seen Reanimator, it came out in 1985, uh, starring Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, who's also um, our producer and also one of our stars, uh, Bruce Abbott. Um, it is the best, I guess, like in one form or another, it is connected and tethered to our story because it, like we tried to make it where the um, the films were in the same universe, if you will. So if yes. you like Reanimator, this is like another story in that Miskatonic verse. If you've never seen Reanimator before, it's not quite like this is like another, it's like if you watched, you know, Ant-Man and for the first time and went like, I know I need more of these type of Marvel movies, but then realize that like you watch one of the other ones that are totally completely different. They're not the madcap wacky kind of version of that type of Marvel movie. They're much more serious. Um, this is just a different total variant on it. Now, for those who have seen reanimator, which I'm guessing a lot of your listeners have because they're very smart listeners that listen to you and they love movies. So yeah, of course you've seen reanimator. Maybe you've seen from beyond. One of Stewart's movies that has been very little seen that I keep telling people to go see. It, it, it's hard to find, but I'm sure you can find it out there. It's called King of the Ants, and um, it is a crime. Uh, it's a crime novel um, that was adapted by Stewart that he did. Um, God, back in I think it's like 2002, 2003, and uh, it stars Chris McKenna, uh, Kari Wer, uh, George Wendt from Cheers in one of the most terrifying um, like portrayals of villainy for a guy that has never played a villain for in his life. Um, <laughs> it was actually, uh, it, the King of the Ants is actually based on um, a British, uh, do, you, do you know who Charlie Higson is? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. He was so, part, yeah. He was on the Fast Show, right? That's right, yeah. Um, he, uh, he was a crime novelist as well. And he wrote this book called King of the Ants, which is, I, I don't want to give too much away because by saying anything of the plot, it kind of gives it away. But if you could ever imagine Stuart Gordon, the, the guy that did Reanimator and Dolls um, from Beyond or whatever, doing a gritty crime novel, that was one of those examples of filmmakers that I went, he can bring his uh, love for provocation and his love for dark humor and his love for violence. And he can take it out of Miskatonic and out of Lovecraft Country and put it into gritty modern LA. And there are some performances in this film that are fantastic. There's some shocking moments that still have kept with me to this day. Uh, there's actually a character in King of the Ants 
that shows up again in Suitable Flesh. Same character, played by the same actor. Oh, wow. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but that was, to me, that was, again, a little head nod or a little tip of the hat to uh, to Stuart being able to take a lot of the people, not just from Reanimator or from Beyond, but from from some of his stage work. The guy that played the autopsy, um, the, uh, the morgue attendant in the beginning of the film who shows up again at the end, that's Graham Skipper. He played Herbert West in um, Stuart's uh, Reanimator of the Musical that was um, live on stage both here, I believe it played in London at one point. Um, so we kind of took a lot of the people from his troupe and brought them back you know, just for this. But uh, if you've seen Reanimator, if you've seen From Beyond and went, what other Stuart Gordon movies uh, can I get that will give me a taste of both flesh and blood? King of the Ants, you can't go wrong. Amazing. Joe, thank you. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the movies. You are going with Rebecca Howard, your partner. You're starting the movie at 7 p.m. in the evening, sitting in row H, seats 9 and 10. You're having a popcorn with real butter and a soda, but the popcorn is fresh. You have designed your cue strategy to ensure that you have the freshest popcorn. You are having a poster in the corridor for 1988's remake of The Blob as your fondest movie memory. Your worst movie memory is getting unfairly yelled at by the staff at the Beverly, the New Beverly Cinema. Uh, and it's spoiled, I guess, Russ Meyer's faster pussycat kill kill. The next poster we're putting up is the last performance that brought you to tears. We're having a little soup son of Harrison Ford in the Dial of Destiny before we watch 1946's humor-esque and Joan Crawford's final moments. The poster we're putting up for your unpopular movie opinion is that Battleship is a masterpiece of summer cinema. We are then playing the trailer for Michael Mann's Ferrari. The moment that makes you pump your fist in the air is Rico's bug rodeo from Starship Troopers. The cinema's most shocking moment is Misery's hobbling scene or, and I can't wait to try and find this, Hollywood 90028 and the last scene in that, your favourite line or piece of dialogue. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Your best use of music in a movie, Eric Clapton's Clapton's Layla from Goodfellas before we watch Blood Simple. Joe, thank you for taking us on this trip. Have you had a good time? Oh my god, I, I can't wait to do it again. Like let's <laughs> let's get another movie night going. Seriously, um, I will say this, Alex. Um, you know uh, that day that we met time uh, at our friend's house, um, I had gone through premiere and I had gone like and which started an hour late uh so everyone was kind of stumbling out at two o'clock in the morning and then getting up again at 7 45 in the morning to go and do about six hours of press and then do the um fantastic uh feud if you will yeah that was 24 to 28 of the wildest most exhausting hours i ever had and yet afterwards we were all having you know like a, a drink or two and just the conversation that we had was so fantastic that it like re-energized me. I remember waking up the next day going, and that fucking Alex guy was cool. You know? <laughs> oh, man. And, and, and I also remember you were walking away, and this happens all the time in the interview. It's like, oh, you should be on my show. You should. Guess what? You, you fucking made good on your, uh, on your claim. And I really do appreciate it. Mate, we did it. And uh, if I can be, uh, once again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but congratulations 
Unsuitable Flesh. It truly is a very, very special movie, and I would suggest everyone go and see it. I absolutely loved it. Thank you. And then tell him, and hopefully everyone else does as well. If you didn't like it, well, if it pissed you off, or but if it got you horny, then forget. <laughs> Have a great rest of your day, Joe. Thank you so much. And as Joe's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It really is that simple, so just jump on there, give us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's Joe Lynch interview and indeed for every guest on our trip to the movie's YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said at the start, do help us grow the pod by hitting subscribe. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.